From Austin Film Festival, this is On Story, a look inside the creative process from today's leading creators, writers, and filmmakers. I'm your host, Barbara Morgan. This week on On Story, we'll hear from screenwriter Andrew Lanham and celebrated character actor Tim Blake Nelson on their new film, Just Mercy. There was a larger mission, which was telling Brian Stevenson's story. And so everything else to me was subordinated by that. And later, we'll hear from screenwriters Guinevere Turner and Michael Werwe for a discussion on adapting true crime events into feature films. The question we all have when you think about people in cults and the extremes that they go to is how did he get them there? Odd Story from Austin Film Festival. We'll be back in a moment. This is On Story from Austin Film Festival. I'm your host, Barbara Morgan. First up, we'll hear from screenwriter Andrew Lanham and actor Tim Blake Nelson discussing their new film, Just Mercy. Just Mercy tells the true story of Brian Stevenson, a lawyer and social justice activist who has devoted his life to defending wrongly convicted inmates. Tim Blake Nelson, an actor with over 80 credits to his name, is best known for his role as Delmar O'Donnell in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? and is a current lead in HBO's Watchmen series. Andrew Lanham co-wrote Just Mercy with director Destin Daniel Creighton. In 2010, Lanham broke into the industry when his script, The Jumper of Maine, won Austin Film Festival's Drama Screenplay Award. I spoke with Nelson and Lanham after the closing night screening of Just Mercy at the Austin Film Festival. Clips of Just Mercy, courtesy of Warner Brothers. It is ordered, adjudged, and decreed that Walter McMillan is to face death by electrocution. This is my dad, sir. Sit down, young man, John. I want you to sit down now. He ain't do nothing wrong. Please, Judge, hold on one second. I won't say it again. Sit down. Not if you're going to kill my dad for no reason. You're killing my family, sir, you! They convicted an innocent man. I was always taught to fight for the people who need the help the most. You don't know what it is down here. They ain't got to have no evidence. How many of you all were with Walter that morning? So, Andrew, I just would love to hear about this book coming to you, how it got to you, what made you decide that this is something you could really, you know, a story you could really tell. Almost everything um, is an adaptation in one form or another, especially these days. Uh, when I read the book for the first time, it's such an intensely powerful and moving experience, your first interaction with Brian Stevenson through his um, authorial voice, and then when you look into him more uh, as a person and a human being. And so for me personally, most adaptations, I think, oh, how can I, how can I bring myself into this and how can I bring my voice into this? And it was kind of the opposite with Just Mercy. It was, will I be able to assist in bringing Brian's voice and message to the screen? When you're adapting something that is very current, people are still alive and you're portraying people who have, you know, either are living or have family that are around or some, some connection to the current world. How does that affect your process of really getting into the part, having to somewhat answer to these people? Well, with I guess with Ralph Myers, the character I'm playing, at a certain level, I couldn't concern myself with how it might ramify in his life or his family's life, simply because there was a larger there was a larger mission, which was telling Brian Stevenson's story. And so everything else to me was subordinated mm -hmm. by that. 
Now that said, I did really want to meet Ralph Myers, uh -huh. and I wanted to spend time with him. And I was discouraged from doing so at the time. And so I had videotape of him, uh -huh. a, a substantial amount of it. And I lived with that for a good six weeks uh, and, and really worked to let it seep in, but without ever really concerning myself too much with how he might feel about that. Mm -hmm. The part was written in a deeply sympathetic way. And so I could do my work in a forensic and unsentimental way without ever really worrying that I was going to hurt anybody's feelings. Did you have to immerse yourself into the court documents and all of that? I mean, did you feel like we that did. was a distraction or a help? No, we went through the court documents. I think in, uh, it's tricky. Brian was very adamant in a, in a good way on he wanted us to really try to capture um, the length and the, at times, mundane experience of working through the legal system, uh -huh. which most films kind of um, breeze through in a montage. Yeah. I've talked to a couple of lawyers who said that uh, Just Mercy bothered them less than other courtroom <laughs> movies, and I took that as a high, high compliment. The courtroom scene with Ralph on the stand was frightening. It's like, what's going to happen here, you know? And I'd, I'd be really interested in how that, how you all decided to play that out like that. I'm assuming you went off off the script and didn't really change it. Did you rehearse that? Did you, how did you work that through? Uh, it was really well staged by uh, Destin. I had, again, everything in front of me. And that made the scene seem so utterly real and it was really well staged in terms of just the, the simplicity of Michael blocking my view of the people who are threatening me uh -huh. so that I can finally tell the truth. It seems really interesting because we from a writing perspective when we were kind of looking at other courtroom films and how they approached it we we went back to the verdict a lot of times because it's so successful in what it tries to do and it ends with like 25 minutes uninterrupted in the courtroom. But we always knew we had so much more movie, um, so much more ground to cover after that point. Mixed with that, we were constantly looking at the actual court transcripts. So thing, I can't remember the exact line, but like I can look at anybody's face like dead eye to eyeball. Those are things that Ralph Meyer said on, on the witness stand. A lot of the things in that scene are things that he said. But the scene was always 10 pages too long. Yeah. And so how much does that affect, do you feel like that playwriting actually affect your performance when you're on a film? I actually, when I'm on a movie, I have to forget that I'm a writer and a director. Uh -huh. Because I, I, I find, particularly once I'm on set, mm -hmm. that it doesn't serve the process to be thinking like a director or a writer. Mm -hmm. That's just not useful for anyone. It's a distraction, and you've got as an actor, you've got too much to do. Yeah. And particularly with a character like this, to be worrying about what's on the page or how it's being shot. I'm fairly certain that every word I say is pretty much letter perfect in terms of the script. And that's as it should be, for two reasons. One, it's really well written. And secondly, a good deal of what my character says, Ralph Myers actually said, yeah. the more true I can be to his essence, the better it is for the movie. The scene in the house where Brian, J Michael B. Jordan goes to their home and hears basically that they've all told the police all these stories before and been clearly ignored was a, just a, another one of those, you know, jaw-dropping moments in the film. You're finding out right then everything you need to know. Where are you going to go from there? Right, and right. where's he gonna go from there? And without belaboring it, and you don't. So th was that a real incident? I to think get the that point? scene's as close to exactly what's in the book, at least, as any scene in the movie. Yeah. I think we knew there'd be a way to approach this movie where you try to act like maybe Walter McMillan is guilty and it's a question of whether or not he's innocent or guilty. And I think we always knew that once you get through the first act, at least, and probably way before then, this isn't, this movie isn't about that question. And 
Brian's book isn't about that question. I think one the thing the thing that makes the book Just Mercy so incredibly powerful is well, one of the things is it's not just Walter McMillan's story. It's also the story of so many other people that Brian has represented throughout his work and his life. And some of those people are guilty of the crime that they're in prison for. And some of them have been unjustly um, convicted and some haven't. And it, it, it's asking you to feel empathy and humanity towards all of them and create, uh, hopefully paint a bigger picture of what's going on. So. Brian was very focused and hopeful that the movie would try to attempt that as well. And that's why we try to really give Ralph the moments that he has and Herbert the moments that he has to at least, at least paint somewhat of a bigger picture of what's going on in our country and our justice system. And does it get into your head somebody who's done that? I mean, this is, that's an interesting character to... Yeah, all the characters get into my head. Uh-huh. They're all a part of me now. You play a, a role in a way that connects you to a character and that sources from within yourself to try to bring somebody else's humanity into dimensionality mm-hmm. within a narrative. And that happened with Ralph very, very deeply. Mm-hmm. Just simply telling his story about having been nearly burned alive uh, as a as a child under the age of 10, being a foster kid, eventually moving into a life of crime. And so just being responsible to a story like this as an actor, mm-hmm. the telling of, the, of Brian Stevenson's story and Walter McMillan's story, and then the larger issues that this movie confronts uh, and exposes. So participating in that kind of story with this type of character with the truth and sensitivity that you owe to that story is going to change you and um, I hope for the better did I go through some sort of dark night of the soul no I think it was a really great humanizing experience and it's one of the reasons I like to act I mean that's quite a story to also have to sort of live and relive as you're reading it and then thinking about it and then putting it to the page yourself. I mean, does does that happen with you too? Yeah, I think um, anytime you're adapting someone's personal, not just their personal life, but the, the, the voice or the message that they're hoping to give to the world through what they've written down. Um, so that always feels like uh, not a burden. It, it feels like a joy, but it's also a great responsibility. Um, for me personally, I'm also always, I, I don't have a, a bunch of giant aims to be a director. I really love writing and the craft of screenwriting and being alone with myself in a room, writing the scenes down. Um, when it's, when it's not going well, I, I don't like it at all, but when it, when it's working for me, that's what I, that's where I feel the most fulfilled and what I'm always kind of chasing. So that process is always, is always a really powerful thing for me. But my, my end goal is always, I'm helping a director in creating a document that they're going to use. On Story from Austin Film Festival, we'll be back in a moment.
This is On Story from Austin Film Festival. I'm your host, Barbara Morgan. The true crime genre has recently dominated entertainment, but crafting narratives based on actual crime can be a tricky path to navigate. I spoke with screenwriters Michael Worwe, who wrote the Ted Bundy Netflix film, Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile, and Guinevere Turner, who wrote the Manson family film, Charlie Says, about crafting compelling entertainment while respecting the human stories at the heart of the horror. Clips of Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile, courtesy of Netflix. Clips of Charlie Says, courtesy of IFC Films and Shout Factory. So let's start talking about um, your two main characters and, and what was the attraction and how you, the attraction to telling a story about them and how you got started. I think, Michael, you, you told me yours was a spec script, right? It was a spec script. I actually had never intended to write a movie about Ted Bundy. I was trying to, I was a bartender at the time and I was writing um, spec after spec and trying to game the system of like big action thriller commercial material and I just hit a block. I didn't care about what I was writing about. So uh, I picked up a book about Ted Bundy. I always loved uh, true crime, but I didn't really know anything about him. And I thought I was, I was just reading it to procrastinate. And I saw a story that was just too good to, to pass up. And I know it had been done and told before, um, you know, many times in books and, and, and um, documentaries, but never from a perspective of the people who knew him. And to me, I saw, I saw that as an interesting way into an otherwise familiar story, to tell a, a serial killer story with no serial killing in it, um, in kind of the same way that Reservoir Dogs is a heist movie with no heist in it. I, I just liked an, a unique perspective into this story. And um, as for Ted Bundy himself, like I just, I think aberrant behavior is, is interesting, and I, th I thought it was even more interesting to tell this story in a way where you don't see that behavior and you kind of get seduced by the, by the man, and it becomes, um, it's a con man story, really. It's a catch me if you can for adults, and that was, that was my way into it from the beginning. My film, Charlie Says, it is about, it focuses on the, the prison time of the women who killed for Charles Manson. So it's a very different perspective on that story that to be honest, when the producers came to me and said, we want to make a film about the Manson girls, it was a big, fat eye roll. <laughs> I was like, really? Why? Because I thought, what, what is there new to say about this? And also, like, so I, I wrote the movie American Psycho with the director, and now I'm like, and now I'm going to do a cult leader. Like, I, my first film was a romantic comedy. <laughs> I just like to point out <laughs> somehow I found myself here. Uh, but so I started doing research, as you do, and trying to find something new to say about these, this whole story. And eventually I found what, a book that is the basis for a lot of the movie, which is a book that was written by a grad student that is on a Canadian academic press that is about a, the woman who spent five years teaching them when they were on death row. And then suddenly we had a story. And then suddenly I, I was interested not in, ooh, like they're crazy and he's crazy and everyone's crazy and there's you know all these things I was interested in. The question we all have when you, we think about people in cults and the extremes that they go to is how did he get them there? And so I really wanted to see if I could dig into that. How did he get them there? That he knew them for less than a year when they were killing strangers for him. And yet, yet the thing about women in prison is that true then in the 70s, late 60s, 70s, and true now, 90% of them killed someone they knew. Like, women just don't kill strangers. I also wanted to understand why the public was so freaked out by them, why they're still, uh, the two who are still alive, why they just cannot get parole. You brought up a, a good point about how do these people do it? How do they seduce so many people, mentally, physically, whatever? Like, that, that woman had interviewed them, or not interviewed, but she'd spent a lot of time with them in the, in the prison. And so she had seen them in varied emotional experiences, going through probably a um, decompression of being under a cult leader, you I mean, know? Arguably, deep, uh, arguably, she was responsible for deprogramming them yeah. in a way, but just by um, showing them proto-feminist Text. Yeah. So talk about how you found your way, because I, I found you really humanized these women in your film. And I had, you know, I've always thought of them as beasts. And I, you know, after watching your film, it was, it was like, oh, okay, <laughs> maybe they were a little more full and rich as characters than I had imagined them through the press. I just finished watching um, Michael's movie this morning. He's doing a really interesting thing. 
we're not not showing the murder, mm-hmm. but unlike my movie, which is unapologetically sympathetic to murderers, um, <laughs> <laughs> yours is uh, is not. It's it really feels like it's as I now realize it's the, it, that woman who almost married him. It's her story. Uh, so I'm just interested in that as well. Just sort of what how you felt you were skirting the line between showing this man was charming and he genuinely loved her but can you genuinely love someone when you like just killed woman number 43 in some brutal way well that is kind of the central emotional question of the movie you know and and hopefully that's what's debatable when you come out of it and there's no right answer and nobody can ever fully know but the intention of writing it that way was to put the audience in the same perspective as his girlfriend was, as the public was the entire time in that era. I mean, we obviously go into the movie with the baggage of knowing that he did it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if we're successful, the chemistry between Zac Efron and Lily Collins, the love story is what you buy into. And if we get seduced into that dynamic, the relationship of the characters, then, then the big twist of the movie is not did he do it or did he not do it, but is he gonna be honest with this woman for the very first time in his life? Did you? Do it. No. Denise Nasland and Janice Art, the two young women from Lake Sammamish? No. The young woman from Utah who couldn't even look at you in court? No. The Colorado women? Oh, Liz, you've always been so insatiable, and it's clear you've come here with an agenda, and I'm sorry. I can't give you what you want. The Kyle College girls from Florida? Absolutely not. One of your victims was a child, Ted. Kimberly Leach. She was 12. 12? And I let you be alone with Molly. I did not do these things, Liz! And, and so it's kind of a deceptive twist. When the spec script went around, it wasn't known as the Ted Bundy movie. Nobody knew what it was. Um, nobody knew who that Ted was Ted Bundy until deep into the script. And so the, there was kind of a big Kaiser Soze moment in the spec stage of it all, but because it's been advertised ad nauseum in the internet age as having this huge twist, um, the, dr- the drama was never constructed to be dependent upon Kaiser Soze. It's, oh my God, he just said this to the one person he, he has to sever all ties with at this point. And, and so that was the goal. And, um, and we wanted to approach it that way because it at least gave more integrity to uh, a story that's caused so much suffering and still so with victims' families and people that are still around who remember the aftermath of it. Yeah. That, so that moment when he writes the word on the window, is that's from her book? That is not. So I, it was not an adaptation of her book. I, I read eight books by, all by primary sources. Hers was one of it, one of those books. But she obviously was not um, part of so many things when he was in jail and on trial. Um, so uh, we got her legal participation in the end. We wanted her to be comfortable with what we were doing. So that kind of came in the 11th hour. But as for everything else, uh, the Hacksaw moment in particular is kind of a fusion of, he did confess to her. He did it over the phone. Um, and he did write Hacksaw to explain one of his crimes to a detective who was getting a confession. We might get to this later, but I felt like preserving the emotional truth of him still admitting to her how the way he did it and doing it in a way that I remember when I first read that hacksaw detail in this obscure book that nobody seems to uh, have ever read. Um, I, I got chills when I read it. And I always remembered this moment, and I knew that was my ending from even before starting the script. So I kind of worked backwards from that. Well, so so talk about talk about your way into both of these based on all of the material because I mean I think that's what's really difficult with true crime. There, is, you know, their experiences are in your brain. Now, how do you pare it down to what's an audience? going to be entranced by where are we going to what story are we going to be interested in following to what angle are you going to want to tell and you each clearly had one so can you talk about how you went through that process of all that material and then narrowed it down when i research i just inundate myself with as much as i can i read watch and listen to everything i can find um and i prefer primary sources if possible and there was a lot with with ted um and what became interesting to me, and the kind of the common thread of all of these books, you know, I read a book written by one of his good friends, obviously the girlfriend, um, journalists, lawyers, cops. The common thread between all of them uh, was just this kind of magnetism that he had, um, or, or some odd attraction that they had, despite some of them knowing about the crimes. You know, others didn't know it until much later. And to me, that was interesting, because um, I knew I didn't want to do any violence in the movie. Uh, and 
and to tell a story where it was really kind of a seduction, it was a con man story of sorts. When I'm like living in the world of the research, the, the feel of the character starts to become clear to me. And then and that's what I track through him because we weren't gonna be watching him stalking and killing people. I didn't have to worry about that part. I wanted to start it after all the crimes had happened. So I didn't have to worry about that. It was just all the denials of it. And how about you? You, you did show some of that. Well, what's interesting about What's interesting about true crime in general is that when something is a high-profile crime, anyone who's well, many people who are connected to it in any way will write books about it, and and in a way, and there's a you know gray area there of their motivations and their perspective, and in the case of the Manson story and the murders, it's just a party of unreliable narrators. <laughs> like almost every single person wrote a book. And then half of them became born again Christians and wrote another book, uh, and both of them, both of those perspectives, don't really feel quite true. Um, so I mean, it's, I, I, a lot of it was sort of figuring out when people are being fantastical or when they're trying to make whatever their interaction was with these people the central thing that made this thing happen. Sorry, the the point of your question was actually not that, but I just felt like. Well, yeah, t it is actually. It's a you know you've decided on your angle of your story, but what am I going to include in here? Like what what really is necessary to keep the character um, growing in your script, and what's just information that's oh that's fascinating, oh, you know? And also, I mean, Michael made a very clear choice not to show these crimes. Thank you. Just that one photograph was enough for me. <laughs> I had written the script with the crimes being really just flashes of images because I thought to myself, and you know, I don't want to be exploitive. I don't want to show this stuff one more time. I, that's not the point of this movie. The point of this movie is understanding these women and how they got to where they are. Um, and so in my script, they were very like impressionistic almost. And then when Mary Heron came on as a director, I said, I, I didn't want to do that out of respect to the living people of the families, out of respect to the criminals themselves, like why rehash it? And we had this long, really interesting conversation about do you look like you're too forgiving if you don't face it head on and what's, what's exploitive and what's just saying, let us not forget, this is the horror of what happened. Um, and so she really talked to me into the fact that we needed to have at least one scene where we just really had to deal with the, and these crimes were particularly messy and, you know, these were not professional criminals. They'd never killed anyone before. So just sort of living with that, that was important. And, and I think she was very right. And I'm glad I did that because I realized it would have looked like I was just too much of a chicken to make scary scenes, which... Let's face it, I am. <laughs> I was like almost in tears on the days when we were shooting those things. It's really hard. It's really, it's hard to, to live in that space even when you know it's actors and people. I'm, I was still sort of feeling, it just it doesn't feel good. Well, one of the challenges I found was excising the right material that didn't serve the story. I mean, I came across so much fascinating research that was just too good to not put in the script. And for a long time, these things were in there because they were just... They're stranger than fiction, but um, but they didn't ultimately serve the story. They're kind of muddying the waters and, and got us off track. So, you know, it was painful at the time to lose certain things in the, in the writing phase, but that that was required in order for like the more for the less sensational things to still play, um, because even though something actually happens in real life, doesn't mean it's going to sell dramatically, and uh, those are hard choices to make. No, but I think what you both did really successfully was to give us as a viewer an impression of how these people did manage to pull off something you know how did he mesmerize these women into doing something so horrible that seems so against particularly one of those characters nature i mean it just seemed like she didn't seem like the kind of person you know that would have done something like that ever you know and and in Ted Bundy's case, you made him very charismatic. I found the way that you portrayed him to be very true to the way that he came across in those tapes. He sounded like a guy you would listen to. I might have go, gone and helped him fix that VW bug, you know? I mean, it just seemed like you could have been conned by this guy really easily, as you did with Charlie. So how do you, again, how do you embody that character? I really didn't want it to be Charlie's movie, but obviously... In order to tell the story, you have to see what the, the part where he was charming and charismatic and then just watch it turn. Mm -hmm. And I just really um, 
I just started thinking about it uh, in the way that people talk about abusive relationships, Mm -hmm. how people get in them and how people get stuck in them, which is to say, tell you that you're beautiful in a way that no one else has told you. Then, then morph that into tell you that no one else sees how beautiful you are, isolate you from the people who love you, and then just when you're feeling safe, take that love away, make you dependent on it, and then give it back. And that's just, then as I just described, you know, just a two-person abusive relationship. And once I sort of got into that, then I, then I thought, oh, I can write this character, and it's, but it was so important to me to show that he was how how like I, I what I really want people to feel is wow if I was 19 and it was 1968 and I met this guy and all these people and would I and then that's that's to me the always the implicating you know in the same way that you were saying that you thought mm, you know what I've you know helped um, you know what I've chatted up um, Ted Bundy in a bar maybe although I'm going to say that. Zac Efron's cuter than Ted Bundy. But Zac Efron's cuter than everyone, really. I took much the same approach. I thought about it like an abusive relationship. I, I, I thought, you know, can we, can we gaslight the audience who knows they're being gaslit and still be successful in the end? And that was always very fascinating to me. And I, and I keep going back to the fact that I always think of it as a love story. And it, it's basically Romeo and Juliet with a court case in between the two of them. Um, it's a romantic tragedy is really what it is and um, they have to come to the first moment of truth in the end and and when I when I reduce it to that to the archetypal love story of it all I'm not in a dark headspace every day when I'm reading um, I know they happen I know they're atrocious and I read a lot of the details but um, but it, I was interested in the domestic life you know because that's something that if we were in a relationship with somebody like that that would be the point of view we would have and only that nobody ever sees a serial killer in action you know, a movie can see that because you choose the perspective. But in real life, you see who's with you in the kitchen making eggs, and you see, um, you know, the guy on the TV screen running the trial like a charade. You know, he really was the first reality TV star. It was the first time there was cameras in the courtrooms, and he understood the power of that before anybody else. He was able to make an impression through his looks, through his, uh, he was articulate, he was a law student, you know, he was, he was able to really exploit that, and, and he knew what he was doing. Each day, the courtroom is filled with spectators drawn by a fascination with the gruesome details of the crimes. What is unusual to see is that many of the onlookers are women, young women. Every night when I go home, I get very scared and shut the door and lock it. But, you know, he's also really dreamy. I'm not afraid of him. He just doesn't seem like the type to kill somebody. I try to imagine myself in his place and imagine what he's feeling. And I wonder whether he did it or not. I think you used it really chillingly. I mean, actually pulling those scenes that I'd already seen before from old footage and using and just reshooting those with Zac Efron. And the, a couple of them were like, wow. You know, I mean, it's, it was hard for me to imagine. I started to think of Zac Efron as Ted Bundy. Well, the hope is that that's where the movie turns and you're no longer being seduced by him, but you're watching this slow motion train crash. And so that's... There's a feeling of dread and disgust that starts to build at that point. And you know, if you watch it a second time, I mean, I think it feels like a horror movie. It's just very dark because you know these awful, awful things, and, and they go far worse than what they describe in court. Um, and so it was designed that way to, to kind of be carried away in the first half and then start to feel sickened in the second half in the same way that Liz um, kind of went through this long process of acceptance. I, I look at it as a movie of like purging trauma almost. You, know, you, you have to confront this and acknowledge it, and sometimes that takes 10 years in her case. Odd Story from Austin Film Festival. We'll be back in a moment.
This is On Story from Austin Film Festival. I'm your host, Barbara Morgan. We're back with screenwriters Michael Werwe and Guinevere Turner, who are discussing adapting true crime stories into feature films. Michael Werwe wrote the 2019 film Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile, which details the life of American serial killer Ted Bundy. And Guinevere Turner wrote the 2018 film Charlie Says, which is based on the life and crimes of Charles Manson and his followers. Well, in your case, though, your your film went the opposite way. You're actually going through all this to help us see these women in a completely different light, you know, not as horrific as they have been made out to be. So can you talk about how that process was for you compared to what was the turn for you, essentially, in there? Because I realized that I, the more research I did and as I started writing, that I was writing a piece that was going to be sympathetic to violent criminals, uh, I had a lot of things in place to remind me <laughs> what I was doing, uh, which is to say I had this beautiful picture book of Sharon Tate, which I would look at sometimes. That's the woman who uh, was eight months pregnant and they stabbed her you know, 17 times. Uh, and I also w would ask myself, would you feel this way if it was your sister? And then I actually put that line in the movie. I have someone ask her that when she's getting really sympathetic toward them. Can you believe Charles Manson wouldn't let them read? It's been three years since they had any contact with him, but all they do is talk about him and spout his bullshit. I want you to come talk to them. You should do your poetry workshop. No way. There are real victims in this prison. They're the ones I want to help. Maybe these women are victims, too. Would you be saying that if it was your sister, your pregnant sister, who got stabbed 20 times? So I just, for me, it was, I'm, I'm trying to, to paint a portrait that's just complex. Uh -huh. I'm not forgiving them. I'm not, I'm, I'm just trying to say, this could be you. Another big question I have for you all is to, to talk about some of the scene choices that you made in there. One I'd really like to hear about from you is this moment where, Leslie, sorry, it comes back to get her, where she has a choice to make. This guy comes, she can get out of here, and she doesn't. And the choice to put that scene in there then and give us this critical moment where choice becomes for this character a magnificent life-changing moment how did you how and you're you're fairly along in the film at that point so can you talk about your your process of deciding you know to put a scene in there like that I as a person have to stop myself from thinking about how the tiniest choices we make can be the biggest choice of our lives. I mean, when I think about the people in my life that I love and the series of choices that led me to even be in the same room with them, it blows my mind because it means that every single thing you do is potentially really important. So that's just a personal thing that I feel like I, I want to put in all movies because I think we should all be terrified. <laughs> Slash hopeful, I don't know. <laughs> um, and so to me, there are several points in the movie where she makes a choice and she makes another choice. One, when she says she wants to go to the the second murder and to me I, I found myself thinking what do you do when you are just in a cell and you're thinking over and over and over about how you got there and you I'm sure you just get down to that choice that you made mm -hmm. that or a series of and that to me just felt like again uh, humanizing this person it really encapsulated the whole thing and regret and the fact that it, it, the way the actress Hannah Murray plays it, I think also is like, she almost wants, she considers it. Yeah. And that would have been the best decision <laughs> she could ever have made. And she must think about that moment every day. And that's a true story of, of that, that particular thing where the guy came back to rescue her. It looks like you're being made to stay here against your will. I can take you right now. You can drop that broom, get on my bike, and we'll be gone. Nobody will stop us.
No. I'm staying here. I want to be here. I, I mean, thank, thank you. So in, in your film, one of those moments that I found like really impactful as well is that she calls to the police. Can you talk about your reasoning for that and where you were trying to lead us? It was kind of a, you know, doing a parallel track of both of our main characters. The way that Ted Bundy had the, these awful secrets, she also had an awful secret. It, this whole, the whole time she's blaming herself, believing that she put him in this mess. This is, this is based on a series of multiple phone calls she actually made. Um, and then for years and years and years thought that she was the reason why all of these things were happening to him. And it was a very slow process of acceptance. But we wanted that to be a big struggle for her emotionally, how we wanted this kind of addictive push and pull, like in the love story and also, um, you know, in previous drafts with, with alcohol. It was 1974 when I put that sketch in the paper of the man at Lake Sammamish who used a fake cast to lure two young women into his Volkswagen boat. Is he ever going to find out that it was me who called? No, ma'am, he won't find out. Now, what is your name? I used to think that I ruined your life because my call to King County made you the suspect in all these other cases. For years, I've carried this guilt that I'm to blame for everything. Why would you blame yourself? Because I could have helped save some of these girls if only I hadn't trusted you. I can't live like this anymore, Ted. It's not my guilt. It's yours. She became a very unreliable narrator at a certain point, too. And I thought that was interesting just from a, a storycraft point of view, if you had two characters that are very similar, but you don't really know that in the middle of the story. Also in that uh, zone, you've got these people who are being seduced, and then are you being seduced? You know, how do you separate yourself from these characters? I looked at both of my characters as being guilty of errors of omission. Like, they're not really lying most of the time. They're just not telling the whole truth. And does that constitute a lie, or does that... <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's like a relationship question. Like, I wouldn't lie. But, it, but it's a relationship movie. That, yeah, that, yeah that's, that, that's exactly... I mean, it's heightened, obviously, for dramatic effect in this movie, but it, it's a relatable dynamic to be in with your partner, I think. And that was interesting to me. Yes, they were, they're both guilty, and they both had to believe that as actors, um, to, have, to have something to play. Everybody likes a good secret. Um, but to get to your question, like I, again, I, I just thought of the love story between the two of them, and so that I didn't have to live in that alternate world. And, and so when we started to get into the, the grisly details of the crimes, um, it was, the focus, from my perspective writing it, was like, what is the circus element here? Because it becomes almost satirical at that point where, where we obviously know what the truth is, and now we're just watching him perform. You know, we talked a lot about that with Zach on set in the, in the Florida court scenes where he is, it's a performance now. It literally is a performance when he's there and, he's, and there's a camera in the courtroom and he's putting on a show for all of America. I was also really appreciative. Uh, so, uh, so a lot of the stuff about the women that I wrote about uh, talks about, you know, one of them was a s exotic dancer and like one of them, you know, her parents got divorced when she was a teenager. Like, you know, people trying to put this sort of things that happened to them or experiences they had in their childhood made them cold-blooded murderers. And I, I loathe that. I loathe when it's a big reveal that someone was sexually abused and that's why this whole movie just happened. I loathe this idea that the A to B to C of... Um, just trauma and experiences we have is going to make us this thing because I'm sure many people in this room have had traumatic experiences and are not serial killers um, or cult leaders. So I was really, I, when, it, when the mom shows up in your movie, I was like, oh God, please don't ruin your movie by having it be like, the mom was X, Y, or Z. Uh, but I was glad you didn't go down that path. So that was a really important thing for me too, is to say anyone could be here and it's not about your difficult childhood. And I, I ended up really liking them. I'm really feeling for them to the point of like, we just wondering what my problem was. <laughs> we wanted to intentionally avoid pointing the finger at any one or two causes. I mean, for that very reason, because it, it is not as simple as reducing it to he had mommy issues or he was abused as a kid or he committed animal violence because these things happen to a lot of people and we don't end up going and raping and killing a million people. Um, and you know, I, I, got the, I got that question a lot after the movie had been done about why didn't we try to explain his behavior more, and that's because there is no consensus on it. There's no one right answer. I don't know what it actually was. I think it's just a series of many, many choices, and you start to bend off in this arc until you're 
in this amoral place. And uh, I think it, it really undercuts any other kind of character messages in the movie if you try to point, you know, try to give answers for something that is unanswerable. When you're thinking about approaching these stories in this very human manner, I mean, like, what do you, well, you had some funny, really funny moments in your script. I mean, when he jumps out that window and... For the longest time, I opened the script with jumping out the window because I thought that was the tone that you could look at it and that he presented it to you if you knew him in that moment. And so to me, that felt true. I could, I could justify an absurdist tone because that's how it would have been. Now, if, if it wasn't like that in the moment, it would have been disrespectful to so, on so many levels. And so I, I, it's very careful. You have to be very careful when you're treading those waters because you do want to be respectful to the people and the material. But, you know, these, these choices are kind of, it, it, you have to put yourself kind of in that, in the time, in the time space and the headspace of, of those people. Yeah. Well, and I mean, to that point, you really did that. I mean, you really put yourself into their, those scenes where they're in the prison are very powerful moments because they've, it feels like exactly what you're talking about. What the hell do you think about in here? I have to reflect at this point on what, where, how I got here, what happened. And yet it took them a long time to reach that point to, to have that revelation actually. Um, I mean, how long did she work with them? Uh, five years. And it took them, they had been in there already for almost two. So they went, it took them seven years to stop starting every sentence with Charlie says, which is what the movie, why the movie's called that, um, which is just mind boggling. But it, the, because they were sentenced to death and then the death penalty was lifted, they were not allowed to enter. They were stuck in on death row and not allowed into general population, which is the worst thing you can do to someone who's been in a cult is leave them with each other. Charlie says there's going to be a revolution and we're going to wait it out in the bottomless pit. Like it says in revelations and that there'll be babies that are homeless and they need saving from all the killings. And then we'll stay underground and make music and make love until the violence is over. And then, and then when it comes time for us to rise to the surface again, some of us will begin to feel budding wings on our backs. Wings? Yes, some of us want to become winged elves. Me and Sandy, squeaky. Charlie says it would happen. Carlene thinks we're crazy. No. I would never use that word. I'm just surprised to hear some of this stuff. You have to admit it's pretty far out. And so that was also part of the point of my movie is, is also just being sympathetic to people who've been in cults that nobody understood the psychology of what they need. Uh -huh. It was like other people who don't, who are like, what the f are you talking about is one, one place to start. <laughs> Clearly there's a huge interest in this. And, and I don't know whether it's, you know, Podcast, the growth of podcasts again, the sort of coming back, certainly seems to have fueled a lot of it. Um, but but what is that fascination? Like when you hear from, for instance, when the why were the why was Netflix so interested in creating two Ted Bundy projects at the same time? You know, obviously there's a market. I think people are just fascinated by kind of the strange and the taboo and the things that are shameful to talk about in public. You know, I think when this when my script went around in 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 2012, um, I was taking a million general meetings and people were almost like confessing in secret their secret fascination in serial killers and true crime. You know, it was before serial and before the jinx and before it was like a, a cool thing again. And I, I think there's always been an appetite for it. It's just nobody's felt comfortable talking about it. But now I think podcasts are, are really um, deserve a lot of the credit because there are so many that examine these stranger than fiction events. And there's just something, I don't know, there's something dramatically enticing about that. I've been thinking a lot about why why people love true crime and why people love, love serial killer stories and cult leaders. And it's it's this, uh, to be honest, it's this us and them kind of mentality. Like, my life is fine because I'm not like those people or I would never get sucked into that. The thing that I say to every woman on her 40th birthday is, guess what the good news is? You just aged out of being in the dem demographic for being killed by a serial killer. <laughs> However, this is the creepy part, and I do say this at people's birthday parties, you age back in at 70. Really? Wow. Yes. Isn't that creepy? But true. <laughs> Was this research you did for Charlie Says? Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I did since, you know, American Psycho. And, oh, then, yeah. and then even when American Psycho came out, so that was 2000, all of a sudden I was hired to do a stalker project. So I started, started studying about stalkers who, you know, many of them, you know, graduate to being serial killers. Uh, so I've been living with, I know a lot of stuff about serial killer stalkers and cult leaders. And I grew up in a cult. 
That's also a fun fact. I did. So that, and that was an, another reason why I wanted to, but I felt like I could really um, bring something to the Charlie story because my mother uh, joined me, joined a cult when she was pregnant with me. Uh, and that's where I grew up until I was 12. So I just know a lot of shit about really dark stuff. <laughs> yeah. So how do you take care of yourself when you're reading all of this dark stuff? Broad City. <laughs> Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <laughs> I also watch short comedy. Like I don't, I can't watch one-hour dramas or even dramatic movies anymore. Like, I'm just in story brain all day long, so I like to decompress that way. Exercise is great. Getting out into nature. I mean, having other activities in the social life is always really helpful. That said, I I, I really do have a lot of nightmares, and and I try really hard to plan so that there can be some buffer in between sleep and some horrible thing that I've consumed. But if you're, you know, really immersed in a project, it's just inevitable that it's not, it's not always going to feel good. We were talking on a panel yesterday, The Terror, which is based on a novel, but the characters were real. And they were, when they made the film, concerned about the grandchildren and the nieces and family members of the people who died on that out in the Arctic, you know, and I was like, oh, okay. So they, they were they were really concerned when they had a uh, screening of the film that some of these people were actually going to be there, and they were. And I thought that was really interesting. I mean, that's generations past. They probably didn't even know that person, you know. So, but they're in a true crime aspect. These A lot of these people are still alive, you know. Do you have a responsibility that way? I certainly worry about it. I, I, I think the responsibility ultimately is to the truth and the facts and, and what the story was. And um, it's not going to make everybody happy. And, and you can't worry about that, especially when you're creating the story in the beginning. I know uh, when the movie was getting released, uh, one of the victims of Chi Omega, one of the surviving victims, gave an interview. And she was supportive of the movie if it was portraying Ted the way he was. I don't know if she's ever seen the movie. Um, but it, it was that to me felt good to hear that kind of vote of confidence if we were being allegiant to the facts. And, and that was always the intention. On Story is part of a growing number of programs in Austin Film Festival's On Story project, including the On Story PBS series, the On Story radio program and podcast, and the On Story book series. To find out more about On Story and Austin Film Festival, visit onstory.tv or austinfilmfestival.com. brought to you in part by the Alice Kleberg Reynolds Foundation, a Texas family providing innovative funding since 1979. This project is supported in part by the Cultural Arts Division of the City of Austin Economic Development Department, the Texas Commission on the Arts, the U.S. Institute of Museum and Library Services, and the Texas Library and Archives Commission. This program is also made possible in part by a grant from Humanities Texas, the state affiliate for the National Endowment for the Humanities. On Story is supported in part by Too Far Media, Immersive Story Experiences by Rich Chaparral. The show is produced by myself, Barbara Morgan. Our associate producers are Colin Heyer, Sonia McCarter, and Maya Perez. Our editors are Jamal Knox and Travis Neely. Audio capture by Travis Kennedy. Music by Brian Ramos. Production assistance comes from The Sound Lab Inc., Travis Kennedy, and KUT 90.5 in Austin. Go to austinfilmfestival.com to find out more about Austin Film Festival and conference each October. Until next time, I'm Barbara Morgan, and this has been Austin Film Festival's On Story. <laughs>